Our scripture today is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen, church. Please have a seat. Wow, after a time of worship like that, I think I'm ready to go home. Thank you, worship team. You know, one of the tasks that I find most tedious and most frustrating is writing a resume. There have been several times in my life when I've had to write or update my resume, and each time I've looked forward to it about as much as I look forward to dental work. You know, thinking through the different job responsibilities that should be included, being careful to try to word things professionally, formatting the document to make me look competent and capable, or just some of the things that writing a, re writing a resume makes so tedious. Well, you might say of our passage today, that it's something of a resume of Jesus Christ. 
Now, often throughout the Gospels, Jesus proves himself through his teaching, through his miracles, or how he answers someone's question. But you see, Jesus' resume is not about making himself look good for a job. His resume is about pointing people to himself as the answer to their greatest need. We're four weeks into our series of Mark, Divine Servant, and as we get into chapter two, we're going to continue to see Jesus giving evidence of who he is and the authority he wields because of who he is. And so far in our series, we've looked at the identity of Jesus, we've looked at the message of Jesus, last week we saw Jesus serving the people, now we're going to see the authority of Jesus. Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority to address our biggest problem our sin. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you three points from our text that show how Jesus demonstrated his authority, his divine authority, to address the problem of sin. So that's our goal this morning. If you're ready, say go. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read again. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your first point this morning from our text is this. Jesus demonstrates his authority by forgiving the broken. Jesus demonstrates his authority by forgiving the broken. The text tells us that he came back to Capernaum. That is where he was, if you remember, when he called Peter, Andrew, John, and James. And this is where he was last week, you remember, when he healed Simon's mother-in-law. He did a number of healings there in the town. And then, you might remember, he left Capernaum. He went and traveled through other towns preaching the gospel, his message. Now he's back. You might remember that I told you a couple weeks ago that Capernaum is like his base of operations. At times, he's going to travel throughout Galilee, and then he comes back to Capernaum. And the report gets out that he's home. Now, presumably, this is Simon's home, as we've seen that he's come he came to last week, small town, word gets out, and many people are gathered once he gets there. The text says that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now, it's guesstimated by by people who know more than, than I do that about 50 people could fit snugly inside the average first century home. So, Imagine people crammed within Simon's home, but not just within. There's probably hundreds outside just trying to cram their way in to listen to Jesus teach. What an opportunity to hear the word of God from the word of God. The text tells us he was preaching. And remember, that was Jesus' main concern. Even over and above healing, he taught the gospel. That was his mission. And he knew that the people really needed spiritual healing. Jesus meets the greater need. And that's what's going on. That's the setting for our story. And look what happens next, verse 3. 
And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And as Jesus is teaching, four men come carrying this, this paralytic, this man who could not walk. And you'll remember from last week, the leper that came to Jesus, he would have been ostracized. Remember, his, his condition was, of course, contagious and rendered him unclean. He would have been ostracized by the people, by the Jews. Now, people in this day who were crippled or who were otherwise disabled, they were not treated that way. They didn't go as far as to ostracize them. However, many people in this day believed that those who suffered in such ways was a result of of the direct consequences of their sin. So he would have been looked at as a paralytic, and he would have been judged. He would have always carried with him in his life this stigma of, oh, he's a paralytic because of his sin. So they get there in verse 4, and when they... And they, when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So get this in your mind. These men come to try to get into Simon's house, and the crowd is so thick, they can't get through the crowd. So they decide to go through the house. Most houses back then were only one story with a flat roof. And almost every house was equipped with an exterior staircase or a ladder to get to the roof. Roofs were used in this time for storage. People dried fruit on the roof. They would even sleep on the roof on warm nights. It was not uncommon for people to be on their roofs. Now, this roof would have been made with wooden beams that were covered with thatch made of twigs, straw, and mud. So you can picture in your mind, they come up to the roof while Jesus is teaching, and they start to dig, and they start to move beams around. So you guess that dirt and straw and and other material is just falling down as Jesus is trying to teach. And they look up, and here's this hole in the roof, and the hole is getting wider and wider, and then there's a mat or or some kind of, of, of bed that is being lowered And it comes right in front of Jesus. And Simon probably screams out, my roof! (laughs) However, Jesus responds compassionately. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that interesting? The text says he saw their faith. What's this faith? Is it, is it the saving faith that we think of as Christians? Is it the faith that Jesus can heal this man? I think there's a couple things going on here, actually. I think when Jesus says their faith, he is referring to the faith of the paralytic and even the faith of the men who carried him that Jesus has the ability to heal. However, Jesus' words to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, suggests that the paralytic realized there was a deeper issue. Why do I say that? I say that because Jesus sees directly into people's hearts. In fact, we're going to see that demonstrated here in a couple of verses. I think it's likely that Jesus saw that into this man that he desired to be physically healed, yes, but that he also saw his own deeper need, and that's why Jesus addresses the sin. Jesus saw their faith. Now, what is faith? And that's a word we throw around a lot. And you know what? It's a word that's thrown around 
not just in the church. It's thrown around in our world even. People say all the time, I have faith in this. I have faith in that. And they put their faith in things like family or government or education or money or whatever. What are we saying when we say faith? I have faith in. What does that mean? It simply means to trust in something. When Christians talk about having faith in Jesus, they simply mean they trust him. James R. Edwards is a commentator who wrote a commentary on Mark, and he says this, faith is first, the, first and foremost not the knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. You actually don't have to know a lot about Jesus to have faith in Jesus. You know, we demonstrate faith all the time without even thinking about it. I very much doubt that you walked into this room and wondered if the chair was going to hold you. You just sat in it. You probably didn't even think about it. That was a demonstration that you trusted the chair, that you had faith in that chair to hold you. When we talk about faith in Christ, it's trust that he is what we truly need. Jesus saw their faith. He says to the paralytic, he first addresses him. He says, my son. Now that you would probably guess that's a term of endearment, but it's more. It's a term that a superior used when acting with authority. When I say to my son, I have a seven-year-old son, and when I say, come here, son, that's a term of endearment. But it's also a reminder, perhaps subconsciously, but still a reminder that I am the father. You are the child. I am the one with authority. Jesus is expressing his authority here. Now, why would he do that? Why would he express his authority? The next words tell us why. He says, son, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus demonstrates his authority by forgiving the broken. Now, let me explain what I mean by broken here. I know the paralytic's body is broken. I understand that, and I think that's partly what we're dealing with here. We're going to get to that in a minute, but Jesus first addresses the deeper need, the spiritual brokenness, the relational brokenness between holy God and sinful man. That relationship is broken, and that brokenness is the whole reason why Jesus has come. He came to seek and save the lost, those who, whose spiritual relationships are broken with God. Jesus, came, Jesus, by offering forgiveness of this man's sin, is demonstrating that he has authority to forgive and restore that brokenness. And you know what? There's only one reason he could have that authority to restore that brokenness. The reason is that he is God. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins because we sinned against God. If you sin against someone, you can't go to their friend and ask for forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. You have to go to the person you sinned against. We sinned against God, therefore he's the only one who can forgive us. Jesus demonstrates his authority by forgiving the broken. Jesus has the authority to forgive and restore that broken, brokenness. When we are forgiven, we're changed. Did you know that? When we are forgiven, 
we're changed. Once we have come to Christ and are forgiven of sin, that changes who we are. Now follow me here. Once you come to Christ, he forgives you of your sin, all your sin, and he makes you a new creation. You are now a child of God. The perfect life that Jesus lived is now imputed to you. Imputed means to credit to a person. In the Bible, it means to treat you as if your life looked like Christ's life. Imputed means that your life, as imperfect as our lives are, when God looks at us, he sees the perfect life of Christ. We are changed because we are forgiven. Once Christ forgives your sins, you are established as a permanent child of God. And guess what? There's no going back. You belong to him, and he's not going to let you go. So what does that mean? It means that you are no longer condemned of your sin. Romans 1.8, you are no longer condemned by your sin. It doesn't matter how much you fail. It doesn't matter what life throws at you. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. You are no longer condemned because you are accepted in the eyes of God. Being forgiven should affect our everyday lives by giving us confidence that we are not condemned but are accepted and loved as children of God. So if we're not feeling confident in that, then our eyes have gotten off of him and the fact that we are forgiven. Jesus demonstrates his authority by forgiving the broken. Point number two, Jesus demonstrates his authority by healing the broken. Jesus demonstrates his authority by healing the broken. Look, at me, look with me at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus demonstrates his authority by healing the broken. Now, this would have been awesome to see. Do you agree with me? But before we get to the miracle, I want to deal with the scribes. This story in Mark chapter 2 begins the conflict that we are going to see with Jesus and the scribes. These conflicts are going to play out over the next several chapters. We're going to see the scribes again and again object to Jesus. They raise several objections throughout this chapter and in chapter 3. And here in our passage, they are objecting to Jesus forgiving the paralytic sin. First, though, let me remind you, who are the scribes? A couple weeks ago, we talked about them when we were contrasting Jesus' teaching with their teaching. I told you then that scribes were experts in the law. They were also known as lawyers. 
They were responsible for teaching the people the scriptures. And I told you, originally, scribes were good. They expounded the word of God to the people. But as time went by, they focused more on previous scribes' teachings. They focused more on previous opinions about God's word instead of God's word. And so by the time Jesus shows up, the scribes are more interested in their traditions rather than God's word. This is our first encounter with the scribes in the book of Mark, and they're here in Simon's house. They've been listening to Jesus, probably came because they were curious. Word about Jesus had spread so far and wide. And then Jesus forgives this man's sins, and they object. Look at verse 6 again. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Note that phrase, in their hearts. The word heart has a different connotation than we think of today. We think of the heart, we think of the emotions, And back then, the heart included the emotions, but it was more. The heart was the center of the whole inner life. It was your thinking and your feeling and your will. It was all of it. The whole inner life. We like to separate it. You know, I do my thinking with my mind. I do my feeling with my heart. But back in Jesus' day, they thought of it as all combined. So they're questioning in their hearts, in their thinking, in their feeling process. They're pondering, verse 7 what is this man, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there's something subtle here in the very first words. They say, why does this man? That tells us what they think of Jesus. They're not buying his claim to divinity. They equate him as merely a man, and they go on to say he's a blasphemer because he's forgiving this man's sins, and nobody can do that but God. Now, to blaspheme is to speak disrespectfully, it's to speak irreverently, and it's also to take God's name in vain. In Leviticus chapter 24, there's a story of a young man who takes God's name in vain, and God tells Moses to have the young man stoned. That was the punishment for blasphemy. Jesus, by forgiving this man's sin, is claiming divine status, And any man that did that was dishonoring God. What the scribes are thinking is, this is a mere man saying that he can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins, therefore he's blaspheming. Now here's the irony of the situation. Had Jesus been merely a man, the scribes would have been right. But the next verse, Jesus demonstrates his divinity directly to the scribes. Look at verse 8. And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Like, what? Jesus just read their minds. He knew what they were thinking. The text says he perceived in his spirit. What does that mean? Is that a reference to the Holy Spirit? Well, the text actually gives no indication that it's the Holy Spirit. Rather, it more likely means that Jesus just knew within himself He just knew what was going on in their hearts. And that actually should not be surprising to us because John 2.25 tells us that he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the thoughts of man. So he asked them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, imagine that was probably a shocker. I mean, I can see just kind of the stunned, confused looks on 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 their faces. But before they can even answer, he hits them with a riddle. Look at verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
Now, that's interesting. Jesus is not asking, which is easier to do? Did you catch that? He's not asking them, which is easier to do, forgive sin or heal? I mean, to be quite honest, with man, both are impossible. What he's saying is, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? I mean, honestly, anybody can say that. Anybody can come and say, oh, your sins are forgiven because you can't test that. Any false prophet could come along and say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove that to be untrue. I could just as easily say, hey, on the far side of the universe, some aliens are having a party. You can't prove that untrue. So Jesus is saying, which is easier to say? And the answer is, your sins are forgiven. That's easier to say to somebody. It can't be tested. So Jesus is going to prove that his claim to forgive sins is more than words. Look at verse 10. Jesus is still speaking, and he says but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Effectively, what he's saying in that verse is, okay, you want to say I'm bluffing? You don't believe that I have the authority to forgive sins? You don't believe I am who I say I am? Watch this. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, in response to the scribe's objection to his ability to forgive sins, Jesus turns back to the paralytic and tells him, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, that statement can be tested. Is Jesus going to pass the test? Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus validates his claim to deity by healing this man. This healing refutes the scribe's objection. Jesus healed him, which means he can forgive sins, which makes him God. Mic drop. (laughs) Now, the next thing here I think is funny. You remember... When the four men came carrying the paralytic, the crowd was so densely compacted, they couldn't get in to see Jesus. But something strange happens because all of a sudden there's room and the paralytic can just walk out the door. It's like somehow they found a way to part and let him out. It's amazing. It says of the crowd that they were amazed, which really means confused or astounded. Their, Their minds are just reeling What did we just witness? Have you ever had one of those moments where something crazy happens and you're like, what just happened? It's like that times 100. They can't believe their eyes, and it says they give glory to God, which probably means they're exclaiming, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then there's this statement, we never saw anything like this. Now think about that with me. Didn't they, though? Didn't Jesus perform miraculous healings in Capernaum just days ago? Why are they claiming to have never seen anything like this? Well, so far, in the book of Mark, he's written of three specific miracles. Track with me. He wrote of Simon's mother-in-law that had a fever. He wrote of the leper and now of the paralytic. Now, we know, of course, that Mark tells us in general that Jesus healed multitudes of people, but he highlights three specific miracles here, and with each miracle is an increase in difficulty. Don't get me wrong. All miracles are impossible without God. Would you agree with that? 
okay? But if you look at these three miracles, they progress. Each is less likely. First, we start off with a a fever, and it was a significant fever, but a fever nonetheless, and Jesus heals it. The next we see is leprosy, harder than a fever, you would say, but Jesus heals it. Now we come to a paralytic who is either his spinal cord is severed or there's some major problem that keeps him from walking, and Jesus heals it. So if you look at these miracles, there's an increase in improbability, even though all miracles are impossible with God, without God. So that might be why they're responding this way. Perhaps they've never seen a paralytic healed. This is next-level miracle, in other words. They've seen Jesus heal sick, but now he's healing people and allowing them to walk. Jesus demonstrates his authority by healing the broken. Now, in our text, Jesus literally heals this man. But for us today, I'm not necessarily saying Jesus is going to heal our ailments. He might. Sometimes I believe he does. I believe in miraculous healings of God. Honestly, I've known it to happen to a select few, but that's not what I want to focus on when it comes to applying this to us today. His authority is to heal the broken. We as Christians, as we just said a few minutes ago, we're forgiven, but we still have brokenness in our lives as a result of sin. And Jesus wants to heal that brokenness. More than physical healing, we need spiritual healing. When I say Jesus demonstrates his authority by healing the broken, what I want to communicate is that Jesus, because he's God, heals the effects of sin through the work of the gospel. Jesus heals the effects of sin through the work of the gospel. See, not only does Jesus offer forgiveness, he offers healing from the effects of our sin. And the more that we gravitate to the truth of the gospel, his message, the more he heals the brokenness in our hearts. For instance, all of us struggle with sin in general, yes, but all of us struggle with patterns of sin, of habits of sin. That's, an, that's evidence of the brokenness that's still in our lives. I once heard the testimony of a man who, even after he was saved, struggled with habitual lying. It was a pattern of sin in his life. And through the work of the gospel, eventually that pattern was eradicated. Similarly, in each of us, patterns of sin exist. Your pattern of sin might look differently than my pattern of sin, But it's still there, and it's only by the continual exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ do those patterns get eradicated. Now, you know your patterns, or if you don't, then that's a good place to start by asking God, what are the patterns of sin in my life that you want to eradicate? But all of us, to do this, we expose ourselves to the gospel daily. You might ask, okay, how do I do that? I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. We expose ourselves to the gospel by preaching the gospel to ourselves. You might say, again, okay, but how do I do that? By constantly going back to scripture that rightly identifies Christ's victory in your life. I'm going to say that again. 
expose ourselves, or rather preach the gospel to ourselves by constantly going back to Scripture that rightly identifies Christ's victory in our life. Verses like these, this will be on screen. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or I'll reference a verse I said earlier, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 6.11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you want to beat the patterns of sin in your life? Go back to the scriptures over and over. Rightly, go back to the scriptures that rightly identify Christ's victory in your life. Recite these verses to yourself over and over and over again. Why? Because a statement repeated enough times is eventually believed. The enemy knows that to be true, which is why he continually lies to you. A statement repeated enough times is eventually believed. So make sure the statements you are making to yourself are the truth. This is why it's dangerous to entertain such thoughts as, I'm worthless, or I don't measure up, or I'm ugly, or I'm filling the blank, because you repeat those things to yourself, and eventually you will believe them which is why it's important for us to tell ourselves the truth, which is only found in God's word. Jesus demonstrates his authority by forgiving sin. He demonstrates his authority by healing the broken. Lastly, Jesus demonstrates his authority by inviting the broken. Jesus demonstrates his authority by inviting the broken. Read along with me, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table, table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus leaves Simon's house again, and he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, as we've seen, and crowds are following him, as we've seen. And of course, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them. Again, that's the setting when we see what happens next. He's passing by, verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. This is the second time we see Jesus calling disciples. Now, at some point, Jesus is walking, he sees Levi, he calls, Levi, by the way, is also known as Matthew, and he is a tax collector. Now, if this were the first century and I said he was a tax collector, you would all say, boo. So let's try that, Okay. He meets Levi, who was a tax collector. Very good, very good, very good. There was likely a booth that was set up somewhere by the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Levi was, and he was probably taxing the fishermen. They would go and they would catch their fish, and as they would come out, he would tax them. 
Now, tax collectors, of course, like we just demonstrated, they were despised. You know, we often make jokes about IRS agents, but this is far worse than that. And it was especially worse if the tax collector was a Jew. Levi would have worked for Rome. He would have been taxing his own people, so he would have been considered a traitor. Worse yet, tax collectors made their money by extortion. Levi would have been a bully. There's even evidence that tax collectors relied on thugs to aid them in getting taxes from people. They were not a popular group. So for Jesus to come by and invite this tax collector to follow him was appalling. You gotta wonder, what did Simon and Andrew and James and John think at that moment? The scripture doesn't tell us, but it would have been appalling in this day and age. No respecting Jewish person, even a religious leader, especially a religious leader, would have anything to do with a tax collector. Jesus shows up and says, you follow me. And just like Simon, Andrew, James, and John, Levi gets up, leaves his job, and follows Jesus. Now that too was astounding. For Levi to leave his job meant that it was highly unlikely that he would ever go back. See, for the other disciples, they were fishermen. They could go back to fishing. In fact, they do for a short time after Jesus dies. But you see, Levi gave up his job. Tax collectors, though they were despised, they were highly sought after positions because it was a great way to get rich quick. So it's probable that before the end of the day, Somebody had jumped at the chance of getting Levi's job. He's not going back. And that says something about him. Though he had a great job, though he was probably rich, Levi likely realized something's missing. This isn't worth it. And Jesus comes along and says, you follow me. And he jumps at the opportunity of a lifetime. After this, they go to Levi's house, and Levi has a party. The Gospel of Luke actually tells us that it was a great feast. And the text here in Mark tells us that they were reclining at table, and that's the way they ate back then. They reclined on cushions at low tables. And the company that's here is referred to as tax collectors and sinners. How'd you like to be in that group? Trick question, you are. And so am I. Now, we understand the term tax collector. We just got done explaining that. But what is meant by this broad word sinners? Okay? This was a term used by the Jews of the day to refer to those who failed to conform to religious standards. In other words, anyone not living like the religious people thought they should live was a sinner. And being called a sinner was the similar, same thing as being called an outsider. Levi, a tax collector, despised by his Jewish brothers, doubtless sought friends from other tax collectors, from other sinners, from other outsiders. In verse 15, we're told that many tax collectors and sinners reclined with Jesus. Once again, as we always see with Jesus, there's a crowd, but this is a different kind of crowd. It's a different kind of crowd than the one we've seen. Other crowds were likely made up of the average Jewish person who was trying their best. This crowd is made up of the outsiders the despised. Just think about it, the typical people that our culture despises. You know, maybe we as Christians don't despise them, but our culture does. We think of the homeless, think of the criminals, think of the prostitutes. Now imagine a great Christian leader going to a party with people like that. I mean, we'd be scratching our head thinking, what's he doing? That's the idea here. Jesus is having a party with these people and 
Here come the scribes. Second time that they object to Jesus, verse 16, it says, and the scribes of the Pharisees. I want to stop right there for a second because it's the first time we've seen that term, scribes of the Pharisees. There were different factions of scribes in Jesus' day. Mainly, there, there, were, there were three, but you mainly dealt with two scribes in the scriptures, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In our day, there are various denominations that interpret God, God's word differently. A similar kind of thing is going on here. The Pharisees held tightly to strict obedience to the scriptures, so much so, as I've said, that they followed more traditions than the actual scriptures. They were just so afraid of breaking the law that they created rules around the law to make sure they didn't break the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they believed only in the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in the prophets. They believed only in the first five books of Moses, and they denied the spiritual world. It's really interesting. They denied the spiritual world. They denied angels. They denied demons. They denied the resurrection from dead. And we'll encounter the Sadducees in, verse, or in, I'm sorry, in chapter 12, and that's a ways off. But for right now, that's what's meant by scribes of the Pharisees. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what are they noticing about Jesus? He's eating with these people. In our day and age, that may not mean a whole lot, but back then, to eat with someone was to accept them. Jesus, by dining with tax collectors and sinners, was accepting them. He was welcoming them, and that was scandalous. Jesus was likely the only rabbi to connect with people like this. And the Pharisees see this and come, not to Jesus, you notice, but to his disciples, which I got to wonder, were they too scared to come to Jesus? Or maybe they were just too offended to walk into Levi's house. Whatever the reason, they come to the disciples and they ask him this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, Jesus, either he overhears this or the disciples bring it to him, but look what he says in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus does here is brilliant. There was a common proverb in the ancient world at this time that went something like this, only the sick need a doctor. What Jesus does is he takes that proverb and he puts a spin on it. The point that he's making is this. He is here to call those who are spiritually sick. Now, the Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners, yeah, they're spiritually sick. But there's another side to what Jesus is saying here. Only those who know they are sick call a doctor. Only know those who know that they're sick call a doctor. If you think you're healthy, you're not going to call a doctor. The Pharisees think they're spiritually healthy. After all, they follow the law, right? But what they fail to realize is that following the law does not result in righteousness. They fail to see that they too are spiritually sick. And Jesus is subtly trying to say that, but they're missing it. Jesus here is handing out an invitation to any who recognize that they are spiritually sick. They're broken and in need of a savior. He's saying he's the one the spiritually sick need. He's demonstrating his authority to heal the spiritually sick, the spiritually broken, by inviting them to realize their need for him. Only the host of a party can hand out invitations. 
It would be inappropriate to hand out invitations to a party that you were not the host, unless, of course, the host asked you to do that. In a similar way, Jesus is demonstrating his authority by inviting people to come to him, the only one who can meet their deepest need. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were blinded to the fact that they needed an invitation. The Pharisees were blinded to their brokenness. Don't you be blinded to your brokenness. Don't be blinded to your need for Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never considered your need for Jesus Christ. The bad news is that we're all sinners and sin separates us from God. And if we stay in our sin, the end result is hell, which is total separation from God forever and ever and ever. But the good news is this. Jesus took your penalty. He took the penalty of death on the cross. And then he defeated death and sin when he rose again. And he's offering you an invitation right now to receive him by faith and be forgiven of your sin. And if you have more questions on that, please catch me after the service. The Pharisees were blinded to their brokenness. Now, you may have already given your life to Christ, but remember, as we said in point two, we're still broken. We're still dealing with the effects of our sin. So let me ask, what blinds you from your brokenness? The Pharisees saw themselves as spiritually superior to others because they followed the law. We too can similarly get blinded to our daily need for Christ by depending on our own righteousness. We can start thinking that we're pretty good because we're doing the right things. You know, we're reading my Bible every day and I'm praying every day and I'm witnessing every day and I'm not using that kind of language anymore, which are all good things. But all too often we get satisfied or sidetracked rather by our own quote unquote righteousness that we forget it's not us but God working in us. We, even as Christians, fall into the trap that it's my labor of righteousness that makes me acceptable to God. That's false. That kind of thinking is only evidence of brokenness in our lives. The believer in Jesus is already accepted by him. So Jesus is inviting you. Jesus is inviting me to come to him so he can expose our self-righteousness, so he can open our eyes to the brokenness that's still there. His invitation is for you to realize where you are still in need of him. You know, when I was in high school, I'm just gonna say it, I was the good kid, okay? I, I was the geeky Christian good kid, that was me. And I remember once, while praying, I actually said to the Lord, I'm ashamed to say this, I actually said to the Lord, I don't see how I'm that bad. God said, oh, yeah. You know, he's, he's showed me over the years. He's still showing me the level of selfishness in my own heart. Friends, I'm not ashamed to tell you I'm broken. And I've been blinded to my brokenness. And let me encourage you to seek the Lord this week and ask him, Where am I depending on my righteousness? Where am I broken? Where do I fail to realize that I am spiritually sick in need of my Savior? Ask yourself that question this week, and then when he shows you, repent of that and trust in his work in you. 
Well, Jesus could have added so many things to his resume. His entire life demonstrated that he is the only one qualified to meet our biggest problem, the problem of sin. And these three three things from our text are just a sampling of what could have been written. They demonstrate his authority, but you know what? His forgiveness, healing, and invitation also demonstrate his love and acceptance to whomever comes to him by faith. By demonstrating his authority, he reveals that he is the answer to mankind's biggest problem, the problem of sin, and praise God that he's the answer. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, you have the authority to forgive and to heal. You invite us to come to you because only you can grant us what we truly need. What a testimony of your love and desire to bring people to yourself. Lord, even though we are forgiven, we struggle to act like it sometimes. Lord, even though you offer healing for our brokenness, sometimes we're too blind to see where we are broken. Lord, help us to receive the invitation you're handing to us to come to you so that you can heal our brokenness. Lord, come to a work in our hearts so we can live lives that better glorify you and exemplify you to others. We pray this in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.